It's Friday, March 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. You're hearing the stories all over the place. Bans on large public gatherings, schools closing, and major sports leagues are all suspending operations. President Trump even banned travel from Europe for 30 days. The goal of all of this is to flatten the curve, which is to slow the spread of COVID-19 to allow local healthcare systems to effectively treat those that are sick. Reed Wilson, correspondent for The Hill, joins us for why canceling all these events makes sense. Next, there was a major victory for Led Zeppelin in their Stairway to Heaven lawsuit. A federal appeals court ruled that they did not steal the opening bars of their song from Spirit's song, Taurus. A lot of the ruling had to do with what's called the inverse ratio rule, which has to do with access to an artist's body of work. Devin Ivey, associate editor at Vulture, joins us for what this means for other copyright lawsuits. Finally, new research is showing how long COVID-19 can survive on a variety of surfaces. While it is still not known if you can contract the coronavirus from touching certain surfaces, it is believed that it is mostly contracted from person-to-person transmission. But it can live in the air for up to three hours and on some other surfaces for up to three days. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. To keep new cases from entering our shores, we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. The new rules will go into effect Friday at midnight. Joining us now is Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill and author of Epidemic, Ebola and the Global Scramble to Prevent the Next Killer Outbreak. Thanks for joining us, Reed. Hey, thanks for having me. So we want to talk about why canceling events right now in this age of COVID-19 really makes sense. And I mentioned the book that you wrote because we're going through a pandemic right now. And obviously, COVID-19 is not as bad as Ebola. But a lot of the themes kind of are shared. A lot of these things with travel restrictions, you know, we're seeing it across the board right now, all these big cancellations, the NBA, the NHL, MLS, NASCAR is going to do races with no people in attendance. Broadway is being canceled. Going back to the NBA, they have two players that have tested positive for COVID-19 and they played a bunch of other teams in the past few days. So now those teams are being asked to self-quarantine. There's a lot of stuff going on, and we're starting to hear a lot of local governments, California, Washington, Oregon, all canceling big events with large groups of people. But this all makes sense. This is what we need to do to prevent the rapid spread of the coronavirus. Reed, tell us a little bit more about this. So I want you to envision a graph with two bells on it. And one bell starts really going vertically really fast, and then it comes down pretty fast. That's what happens if we don't do anything in the face of a viral outbreak. A lot of people get the disease really fast. Now, in the second instance, the bell is low and sloped. So it's got a gentle curve up and then a gentle curve down, which means probably the same number of people get the virus, but over a much longer period of time. Somewhere on this graph, on the vertical axis, is a line that goes across the chart. And that line is the hospital capacity that we have. So if we've got 100 beds and a population of 200 people, if all those 200 people get sick at the same time, well, 100 people get beds and 100 people are out of luck. 
And those people have a much, much higher risk of dying or having some horrible health outcome than the people who get hospital beds. If those same 200 people all get sick, but over a very long period of time, it gives the first 100 people the chance to heal and get better and be discharged from the hospital in time for the second 100 people to get the beds and get the same treatment. That's what we've seen in countries that have worked really fast to bend this viral curve and to make sure that they have the hospital capacity to take care of so many people. The president, in address the other night, just said that he's banning travel from Europe for 30 days. And that begins Friday at midnight. A lot of people walked away from the president's speech, not necessarily feeling any more confident about the big situation here in the United States. But these measures are things that need to be practiced. Travel bans, they have a limited benefit here. And we've seen, we saw that in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. The president slapped a travel ban on China. And sure enough, COVID-19 came to the United States, not in somebody who is Chinese, but an American who was visiting Wuhan and came home. So the president's travel ban on Europe still allows Americans to travel home from any place in Europe. It just doesn't allow European citizens. The thing that concerns me about this virus is not it coming in from overseas, from China, from Europe, from Iran, from South Korea. It's the community spread that is happening right here, right now. Look, my hometown of Seattle, they got more than 200 some cases. Those cases are all community spread. It's not as if new people are coming in from Europe every day and coughing and getting sick and showing up at the hospital. No, that virus is spreading in that community. That's what we have to be paying attention to. There's been a lot been made about testing and all that, but some people are saying the window is closing for a widespread outbreak to happen in the United States, something similar to like an Italy or something like that. Obviously, the numbers are still relatively low compared to that, but how is our window with regards to that? It's not looking good. I mean, the number of cases are charting almost exactly where Italy was about 10 days ago. We're effectively 10 days behind Italy right now. And if we don't start taking some pretty drastic actions, we face the same threat that they do. I'm not saying this in a partisan way, but having evaluated the American response to the Ebola outbreak and now watching this one, the level of Sheer incompetence at the federal governmental level is staggering. I was watching today as Congress was debating whether or not to pass some kind of legislative action to combat the coronavirus or at least provide a ton of funding for it or go on recess. And there were some senators who were suggesting, well, we'll just go on recess and come back the week after next to solve this thing. It's like, guys, the time is now. Like I, I was starting right. to physically see red. I was getting so angry at the lack of action and response. We've seen some good actions from some governors, governor of Washington, governor of Ohio, the governor of New York and California have all started banning big events and mass gatherings. That's excellent. We need to do more of that and we need to do less of the sort of partisan bickering that we see in Congress. And I'm not sure that these guys realize how incredibly crucial it is to do this, not like now, but like two weeks ago. So the other big thing, you mentioned all the governors kind of canceling large events and how everybody needs to practice a lot of social distancing, things like that. I just have to mention it because a couple of days ago when we were getting all the news and everything, and then Tom Hanks announces that he has coronavirus, he and his wife. Tom Hanks, great actor, all that beloved person in the country. It just takes like those moments to really click for a lot of people, I think. And these closures, there's a lot of hysteria going on, but these are very sensible things, actually, that we have to do to help limit the spread of this. 
we need to recognize our own individual role in this. I mean, it's our job to wash our hands constantly. It's our job to stay home if we're sick. It's our job to make preparations so that, you know, if we do have to quarantine for two weeks, we can live in our houses. But when you mentioned Tom Hanks, a New York Times reporter who's an expert on epidemics, brought up something this morning that I thought was really appropriate. He talked about the Rock Hudson moment. Back in the early 80s, Rock Hudson was the like leading man of the 50s and 60s and showed up on screen with Doris Day. Well, back in the 80s, he got sick and people didn't really know what he had. He might have had cancer of some kind or whatever. But then all of a sudden, when he goes to France to get treated and he ends up dying of this thing called AIDS, it was the first time that Americans had really heard and understood what AIDS was. And five days later, after his death, Congress passed the first big funding bill to fund research into AIDS. So maybe Tom Hanks getting sick with fortunately something that's a lot less deadly than AIDS. Maybe that was the Rock Hudson moment where we all wake up and say, oh, my God, this is something we need to really, truly prepare for. There's no reason to panic, but there is reason to prepare and get ready. And I think that's what we can take away from what was an incredible Wednesday night of Hanks getting sick, of the president's address, of the NBA canceling its season, and then the Dow falling off a cliff the next day. I mean, if people needed any excuse to wake up, they've got it by now. Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Essentially, the original lawsuit back in 2016, it came down to something called the inverse ratio rule, which analyzes the likelihood of Led Zeppelin having had access to Spirit's work. Joining us now is Devin Ivey, associate editor at Vulture. Thanks for joining us, Devin. Thank you very much for having me. Led Zeppelin is finally cleared in its Stairway to Heaven case. And this is years after the first lawsuit had been filed. And I mean, I think the song is from 1971. So this has been a long time coming. But briefly, there was a lawsuit by a band called Spirit. They had a single called Taurus. And they allege basically that Led Zeppelin stole the opening bars there to make a stairway to heaven. Briefly, before we get into this whole thing, I wanted to play just a little clip from each of them just so everybody can have their frame of reference. Here is a clip from the band Spirit, and the song is Taurus. Here's Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. All right, so they're the two songs right there. I mean, obviously, just to the simpleton's ear, they do sound vaguely familiar, but the court has ruled now that they did not steal this from the band Spirit and the song Taurus. Devin, tell us all about it. So essentially, it boiled down to Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, who are the two frontmen of Led Zeppelin who composed the song many years ago. They were indeed accused of plagiarizing that instrumental song Taurus by Spirit. And Taurus was by no means a big commercial hit. It was not a big radio hit. It was merely just an instrumental song on one of Spirit's albums. 
And essentially, the original lawsuit back in 2016, it came down to something called the inverse ratio rule, which analyzes the likelihood of Led Zeppelin having had access to Spirit's work. And it's really interesting because the court ruled that it was indisputed that Spirit and Led Zeppelin crossed paths in the late 1960s, in the early 1970s, because they actually performed at the same venue a handful of times together in that time frame. And Led Zeppelin also performed a cover of one of Spirit's songs called Fresh Garbage. Jimmy Page even had admitted that he owned a copy of that album that contained that song, Taurus. But obviously, did he listen to it? You know, nobody knows on that front. Exactly. And that's where it boils down to, in the end, there was no direct evidence on one hand that the two bands even toured together or that the Led Zeppelin, of course, members heard the song. So in the end, it created this very interesting dichotomy of the reality is that even though access was proved that the bands interacted, the court and the jury could never hear or they'll never know what Led Zeppelin actually had access to. Now, this was being watched pretty widely by music lawyers and artists alike all over the place. After 2015 happened and the whole trial over the song Blurred Lines, you know, Mm -hmm. they kind of changed the rules a little bit going beyond proving copyright infringements on melody and lyrics and started including other elements like the sound and the feel, the vibe of the music. And that's what happened in that case. They had to pay like $5.3 million dollars for copying Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. So everybody Mm -hmm. was kind of looking at this to see what would happen. And there was a lot of other lawsuits that came in the years after that, just because they found that it was a lot easier to prove a copyright using other elements. So how does this case now, how does the decision in the Led Zeppelin case now impact other potential lawsuits? When Jimmy Page testified back in 2016 in what was by all means considered a very memorable and interesting testimony, if there were any fans in the courtroom, given this lesson in history of rock and roll, Jimmy testified that chord progression in a song is common and expected. And he said that chord sequences are very similar because he verbatim said chord sequence has been around forever. So it boils down to how exactly can one define what a chord sequence is and how chords can be laid out for future songs? And if they are laid out, how can one define a chord copyright within a song? And you see a lot of songs going forward now with top 40 artists who are sampling songs from the past and just flat out giving them credit in the linear notes. Like I can For one, think of Beyonce during her Lemonade album. In one of her songs, she credited Ezra Koenig of Vampire Weekend because there were a few chords that were indeed similar. I think musicians and bands are really being more cognizant about if they are to sample something or if something just coincidentally sounds very similar, they might just take the stress away and settle something before it potentially could get out of hand. One of the interesting things in this case, from my understanding, is that the jury wasn't able to hear the music because part of how copyright rules worked, only the sheet music was copyrighted. So they couldn't actually hear Mm -hmm. the song because you hear it and off the top of your head, yeah, they sound pretty similar. They go different directions a little bit, but the jury originally wasn't allowed to hear the music. If I'm not mistaken, what was ultimately played was cover songs, which of course is not even close to being the same. You have to hear the exact song. And that is one of the things that really led in late 2018 to a panel throwing out that 2016 decision because it ended up being on the grounds that 
the trial judge gave the jury rather incorrect instructions in regards to what constitutes copyright protection and copyright law and also not being able to hear both songs in their original glory absolutely could affect what a jury would rule. Devin Ivey, associate editor at Vulture. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again. We've got to act like there's going to be a problem. And that means doing everything you possibly can to do the guidelines that the CDC puts up, which sound very simplistic, but they're really important. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thanks for being here, Victor. Thank you. As we continue to learn more about the COVID-19, the coronavirus, one of the big questions about it is how the germ that causes all of this moves so easily between people. Obviously, we think, you know, if you're coughing or sneezing, there's droplets of the virus in there and somebody can contract it. That's how it's moving. But we don't know too much exactly just yet about how it lasts on surfaces. So if it was on a surface and you touch that surface, then maybe touch your mouth. Can you get it that way? So there was some new research done from the National Institutes of Health, the CDC, UCLA and Princeton University. And they found out that it acts a lot like SARS. It can live anywhere from a few hours to a couple of days on certain surfaces. As a contrast, if you're thinking about things like the flu, like influenza, if you touch a surface that has the flu on it, you can sweep up millions of viral particles in just a few seconds. And then couple that with studies that say people touch their faces 20 times every hour. Boom. That's how things spread really quickly. So, Victor, tell us about this research and how long... COVID-19 stays on certain surfaces. Let's provide a little bit of context real quick. The leading theory is still that COVID-19 is spread through person-to-person contact. And B, the research I'm about to give is in an enclosed specific setting. We don't know how much of the virus would need to be there in a real world scenario for someone to get infected, like touching this board or something. So a couple things. One, COVID-19 lives in the air for about three hours on cardboard it's about a day or so and on plastic and stainless steel it's up to three days which again context all within an enclosed spot but if it lives in stainless steel and plastic that's kind of bad because it's everywhere it's in hospitals like a lot of medical tools are made out of plastic and stainless steel. If you go on a bus and you're holding onto the pole, that's stainless steel. So we need to always remember, like, take a step back. This was in an enclosed setting, but that is a bad thing. But that's why they always say, make sure you're cleaning all your surfaces and constantly washing your hands and all that. The one that was interesting is that they said it could last on cardboard for about a day also, maybe 24 hours or so. That's just kind of crazy thinking because... We live in this kind of Amazon delivery <laughs> economy right, right now. It's like right. the packages are delivered. So if somebody's at a distribution center and they have COVID-19, maybe they can get all over the boxes. And if you got that one-day shipping, <laughs> maybe maybe you can grab it. But as you mentioned, these aren't all real-world settings, how they're studying this. But they're comparing it to SARS in the sense that it lives on surfaces just about the same. But SARS wasn't really transmitted in that way, as you mentioned at the top. It really is that person-to-person transmission that they're really looking at. The good news is simply wiping down a surface before touching it reduces a million particles down to just 100. 
So like we've been saying throughout this entire thing, very simple things like washing your hands, being aware of the area around you will drastically reduce the odds of you getting something like this. Yeah. Well, we're continuing to learn more and more about COVID-19, so we'll obviously keep our ears to the ground for it. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.